0: You know what a rumor is. It's unverified information, usually a mixture of truth and untruth, passed along by word of mouth. A less polite synonym for passing along a rumor is the word gossip. Now, you're probably thinking, in the back of your mind, you're saying, you know, what happened that has provoked Arch to want to talk about rumors. Is there some big rumor in the church that's going around? Is is there something happening here that, that we don't know about? Or maybe you're already thinking about some of the rumors that are floating around the church. And you're saying, which one is it that got him all upset about this? Well, let me put your mind at ease. The reason that I want to speak on rumors this morning is because John, the writer of the Gospel of John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote his final chapter, chapter 21, primarily for the purpose of dealing with a rumor. A rumor that had been making the rounds of the church of his day, what we call the early church or New Testament church, which we often look up to and should. Particularly the church that existed in and around the ancient city of Ephesus, where John lived in the remaining, lived and ministered in the remaining years of his life where he wrote the Gospel of John and a number of other books clearly in many ways church life hasn't changed all that much in 2,000 years when you begin to realize what they were facing and what we face today what kind of rumor would warrant a whole chapter of the Bible a whole chapter of Scripture which was very uh, to produce a chapter of the Bible was a very time-consuming an expensive process. It wasn't. You didn't go down to the local stationery store and buy a ream of 500 sheets of paper and scribble on it. You went and you purchased papyrus and you better have some serious money just for one sheet. It's a very expensive proposition to write. And that's why much of the Bible is put forth in a succinct and clear way. There wasn't time for A lot of extras that we might have liked to have known, extra information that would have helped us with our speculations. Instead, the Bible gets right to the point because time and the cost of writing is a very expensive process. So here it is. We have a chapter of Scripture that was primarily devoted to the dispelling of a rumor. Maybe we need to look at the rumor itself. So I invite you to turn to John chapter 21, verses 18 to 23. Jesus had just challenged Peter to love him by feeding and caring for his sheep. If you were here last week, you remember that message, hopefully. But Peter, still reeling from his failure to stand for the Lord and even die for him, remains uncertain about the quality of his love. And if indeed he would make that ultimate sacrifice or even the kind of sacrifice required to fulfill what our Lord was asking. But our Lord assured him that he would, in fact, in due time, at the end of his life, his physical life, he would die for the Lord. He would make that sacrifice and demonstrate that truly he loved the Lord with an agape love, not just a phileo love as we talked about last week. We read about this in John 21, verse 18 and 19. Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished, but when you are old, he's talking about at the end of his life, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. What's this mean? Well, John wants us to understand, so in verse 19 we read, This he spoke... Signifying by what death he would glorify God And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me Follow me He was speaking in the fact that, as tradition mentions, Peter was crucified And tradition says he was crucified upside down I don't know that that's true, but in any case, he was crucified Jesus said to him, follow me Now this was the third time, the third recorded time In Peter's life when Jesus said to him follow me but peter was still wondering if he had what it takes so he looked back and saw john right behind jesus as where he usually was right there next to him and he looked at john and began to compare himself to john and this is what we read then peter verse this would be verse 20 Then Peter, turning around, saw John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? In other words, this is identifying John. Peter, seeing him, seeing John, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? When and what kind of death will he die? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Fourth time that that the record says Jesus told him to follow him. Verse 23. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. This saying. Was the rumor This was the rumor What John had written in this chapter Was actually intended to set the record straight And also dispel the implications of the rumor That's the problem with rumors They often have implications That are more devastating than the rumor itself Even if it's even close to the truth it is likely that this rumor took on a life of its own And we know what that means As rumors are inclined to do Now if you look closely at the rumor And put yourself into the position of a brother or sister In the church in the first century Who had embraced the rumor You would conclude first off That that brother or sister Probably believed that the Lord would return Come back, second coming During the Before the generation of the apostles died out. And they were getting toward that period of time, about 60 years, 50 years after the death of Christ, when those apostles were beginning to die out. Now, if you thought about the rumor, and you played with it in your mind, you might next begin to think that those who last till Jesus returns like John was expected to do, because that's what Jesus said, right? Wrong. But that's what they thought he said. That those who last until Jesus returns are especially blessed by the Lord. And if this is true, it means that John's life and ministry as an apostle would have more value, more importance than Peter's. Who, because he had already died before the Lord's return... As Jesus seemingly prophesied Was not, not considered blessed by the Lord On the same level that one would be blessed if he remained to the end And therefore the church would conclude Or those in the, life of the, in, the, in the body of the church Many of them concluded That the life and ministry of Peter Is not nearly as important or significant or valuable to the church As the life and ministry of John And you say, that's strange, is it? Isn't this the way we think today? Don't we look at ministers and people who are serving the Lord and we do this comparison job? And we immediately assume that, well, one's blessed of God and the other's not as blessed by God. Therefore, one's more important than the other. That's sort of the way we do it. That's the immature Christian way to do things. And they have lots of immature Christians in their church as well. They probably thought, some of them, that Peter the bad boy, who denied the Lord three times in addition to do other blunders, would always remain a second-class or, at best, somewhat inferior disciple. And his punishment was to die early or die before the Lord returns. John, on the other hand, was the beloved disciple, the one who was always uh, looking to lean on Jesus, who stood by while he hung on the cross, who was there to receive his mother when he said, this is your mother now? A gifted disciple, prolific writer, communicator of the Word of God. His reward would be a long life up until the Lord returned because he was greatly blessed to the Lord. That's the way an immature Christian thinks. And it's all based on a rumor. This is not how every believer thought in the first century, trust me. But there were plenty of people in the church that probably had moved even to this level. Some had just bought into the rumor that the Lord was going to return at any moment. Others had taken it to perhaps this next level. Therefore, John, after the main body of the epistle was written, chapters 1 to 20, John is determined to add what we call an epilogue. This was probably added sometime after he wrote the main body of the epistle, of the the letter. Or the book. And he realized that there was a rumor floating around that is causing a lot of problems in the church. And so he felt a need to add a chapter, an epilogue, which means an added word, to what he had already written. Most importantly in this epilogue, John wanted to correct the untruth contained in the rumor itself. Notice how he does this in the last part of verse 23. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But, and underline the but, this is what he said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You are hearing him straight. I want to set the record straight. Jesus did not say John would not die. But if John were to remain alive till he comes, what is that to you, Peter? You follow me. Now, beyond setting the record straight on just what was actually said, which John did in verse 23, John sought something else that was even more vital in dealing with the rumor. John determined to put these words in context. Words which had been so misunderstood and misapplied by perhaps many immature and untaught believers. John wanted those who read chapter 21 of the gospel to see the context of these words. And the context is one of, as I shared last week, one of restoration, of grace and love and mercy. The context in which Jesus restored Peter and commanded him to follow him and specifically to feed and care for his sheep. And even while Peter got his eyes even when Peter got his eyes off the Lord and looked back at John and made the comment he'd made, the Lord still brought him back in the spirit of restoration and said, You follow me. Regardless of what happens to you or John or any other disciple, you follow me. I have great things in store for you, Peter. Yes, your love will stand the test of commitment and sacrifice. You will die for me as you had once insisted that you would. And we're ready to do. What a difference when you get the context. When you get the story right and have a context, a clear context to wrap the rumor around, the story around, contrary to being an inferior disciple, a loser, who died out early because of his failures, Peter would become a great shepherd of the Lord's sheep. And he would eventually pay the ultimate price for those sheep. He would lay down his life for them, just as the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd, laid down his life for them that's what's going on here now from this simple dialogue we learn several things about rumors, three things in particular But I'd like to set with you this morning or say with you this morning first of all when it comes to rumor set the record straight set the record straight seek out what really happened and what really was said before you do anything else That means you have to go to the source, or at least to someone who was there and saw or heard clearly what was said and the context in which it was said. As we say, you need to go to the horse's mouth. This is especially true, by the way, when it comes to rumors about what God has said in his word. I hear this all the time. People will say, the Bible says this, or the Bible says that, and they will pass along a rumor with part truth, part untruth. Let me give you an illustration, and this happens a lot, I hear it continually from Christians. By your fruits, by their fruits, you shall know them. And almost invariably, when people say that phrase, they're looking at someone's actions and the way they live and saying, they can't be a Christian Because it says, by their fruits you shall know them When if you go to the passage itself in Matthew 7 You will find that what Jesus is saying By their fruits you shall know them He's looking at the fruit of what they taught In fact, their life was almost impeccable They cast out demons They did all kinds of things in the name of Jesus It was their teaching that was faulty And that was the fruit that the church should pay attention to we do the opposite today. We don't really care a lot about what somebody says as long as they help us to cry or feel good or whatever we want to get out of church. But Jesus says, that's the fruit you should be looking at. What does a person say? But the rumor is, by your fruits you shall know them. That is, we should look at what people, how people live and determine if they're Christians or not could be further from the truth. We should determine by what they say if they're false teachers. That's the point of the scripture. Second, put the record in context. Put the record in context. Never pass along a rumor without a context that is faithful to the truth. That makes so much difference. It makes so much difference when you have a context. I thought about illustrations, but the problem I've got is that if I say, give you an illustration, somebody here is going to pick up on it and feel badly. And I'm too old to remember what illustrations might have existed in former churches that I pastored. So I'm not going to share an illustration with you. I'm sure you've got plenty of illustrations, but it goes like this. You assume something because of what you hear and then somebody puts what was actually said or done in context and you say, oh, I see what I see what's happening now. And you feel a little guilty inside because all along you were thinking and probably passing along, as I've done, rumor that is wrong. It conveys the wrong idea because it wasn't in a context that was faithful so often we think if we've quoted somebody accurately or described something honestly that we can pass on whatever we've seen or heard but friends if we leave out the context a context that's faithful to the truth we are in effect breaking one of the ten commandments you shall not bear false witness because we are leaving people with a with an impression that is not right Furthermore, even if you are the sort of Christian that doesn't pass along rumor, you're one of those rare birds that just, you know, rumors come and go and you don't pay attention to them. But if you hear a rumor and you know the context, first set the record straight and then put the record in context. It's your duty. If we are committed to the truth, it's our duty. Don't let an untruth or a partial truth or a mixture of truth at error Be embraced by brothers and sisters in Christ whose very maturity and growth in Christ depends upon knowing the truth. Step up to the plate and defend the truth of a matter. Third, do not value a rumor. Value the word. Do not value the words of a rumor, even if the rumor is true, because rumors can distort our perception of others and of life itself. We as Christians, I think, are particularly susceptible to that. You recall a few years ago the the big scandal that sort of floated around the Christian world about Procter and Gamble and this symbol that they had and all that kind of stuff, and that the president had had lunch with uh, you know, on a on a TV show or something and said something about Satan and that, uh, that they were part of the church that he was part of the church of Satan and a bunch of nonsense. That went through the Christian world like like gangbusters. I remember everybody asked me, have you heard about this? Rumor, rumor, rumor. I went online and just looked up one of the websites that's guilty of passing on this kind of rumor stuff. This is what that website said. It, the, the website's called Devil Companies, Devil Products and Devil Logos. Sounds like it's a rumor real rumor mill. It says, uh, "We've received mail from time to time asking if Procter and Gamble The maker of many well-known soap and detergent products is a satanic organization. Inquirers frequently call our attention to P&G's Curious Logo. In fact, I have no evidence whatsoever that Procter & Gamble is linked to a Satanism. The constant rumor that the president of this huge company once went on a major TV talk show and professed to being a member of a church of Satan has definitely been proven to be false. Well, then why are you talking about it? And even if something may be true, what kind of damage do we do to people who may be indirectly or innocently associated with a company that might be, have a head who's a bad person? We need to get our facts straight and we need to have a context. What we need to value is the Word. What do you mean, Arch? Value the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. The one who is called the Word. The ultimate and final expression who came to reveal God. I'd like for you just to look at how John closes his gospel. John 21, verses 24 and 25. This is the disciple who testifies of these things, the whole gospel he's speaking about here when he says these things, and who wrote these things. And we know, we apostles and others who were there, we know that his testimony is true. John writes in the third person, as you know. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, but which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Period. Amen. Why would everything in this one man's life generate more writing and more books than the whole world could contain? Is that hyperbole, and overstatement, or what? In saying this, John is actually bringing us back to where he began, his epistle. John ends where he began, at the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness we have all received grace for grace. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He, and you might insert the Word, has declared him. Father, help us today to take to heart these things related to rumors and the need to be people who are committed to the truth, the truth of your word, and not only the truth that is expressed by your Son, who is the word. We ask this not for our sake, but for his sake. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, would you uh, pass your cards to the center here. It'll take about 15 minutes and we'll deal with this. Just come on down and pick them up here, guys, and uh, obviously we won't have time to deal with all of them. Okay, just let me have them. Okay. Okay, I need to have them down here, guys. Somebody could pass them down to me. Thanks. Okay. Regarding rumors, what if someone goes to the source to clarify the rumor, but it's actually none of the person's business to know? (laughs) That's a good question. I don't really have a good answer. (laughs) You know, I, I think that, obviously, when we deal with a rumor, we should ask God for wisdom. And we shouldn't be blasting into a situation that maybe could uh, be even more damaging. On the other hand, if the rumor has gotten to a point where even that person's reputation is being hindered or hurt in some serious way, sometimes we need to risk going to the person and talking to them and getting a straight answer from them. I've gone a few times and when I've heard rumors that you know, for instance, somebody was committing adultery, and, and it was open and well-known, and, you know, it's not exactly an easy thing to go talk to a person about that. But you have to sometimes do that. And he may say it's none of your business, but in reality, I would say to him or her, it is our business in the sense that you're part of our church family. So I think it's something you have to really put some wisdom into and some balance. Why give in to the lie if you are an antichrist? If you're an antichrist, well, I'm not sure I understand the question. But uh, certainly, we should never give in to the lie. If you're referring to some of the things that I mentioned there about Procter Gamble and something of that nature, I think we get. My personal opinion is we Christians are we love we love the sensational, and we talk about things, and we we're into the, all the various things that are that we think are conspiracies and so forth that are going on in the world, and. I think we give man a lot more credit than he deserves. I don't think that, uh, you know, the Trilateral Commission is running our country. I think God's running this world and ultimately going to bring it to a conclusion. And I hear all these things and I I get a little nervous because I think that sometimes we bought into the lie that all these things are going on behind the scenes. And the scriptures seem to indicate we shouldn't be worried about that. It's not our job to uncover. The plans of the darkness around us our job is to, to be aware of what God's plans are and to be in step with him. What is the being, what is being done to stop groups like this like the ACLU from changing the beliefs that our country was built on? If it is up to them we would cause to phrase in God we trust would be eliminated Our church across the churches across the country should be fighting the ACLU. I think there's some room here for Christians to disagree on how to become involved in political or problem issues. The ACLU, uh, certainly if you look at their fundamental statement, isn't all that bad. But it is a godless organization that has taken the idea of protecting people's rights to an an extreme to try to defeat and, and basically blast Christians. And I agree, it's a terrible organization at this point. But should I get out and carry a sign? I don't think that's where I'm at. But I respect the right of you. If you feel that's what God would have you to do, I respect your right to do that. And I think we need to function together with a sense of of balance there. It's important that we love each other. And even though we may disagree on how to protest or how to deal with things uh, that are problems in our culture and our society... I think that, uh, that overall, we need to show our society that we're in love with each other, and we may disagree on some things, but overall, there's a real unity of spirit in our, in our church family, and we want to keep it that way. John 3.16, please help me with the definition of believe. What does it mean to believe, and how much do we have to believe? Well, this brings up a little interesting question. I had one, too, that I wanted to ask you. And I'm going to ask you this question first, and then you tell me. Then I'll try to answer this. Why doesn't John ever use the word repentance? Anybody want to answer that? Quickly. I don't want to be in trouble. Why doesn't John ever use the word repentance? I don't want all the Bible scholars here, but I'll pick on one, I guess. Okay, Bob? Okay, Okay. here you have The passage in scripture that John wrote He says, I've written these things that you might What? Believe And in believing You might have life in his name Believe that Jesus is the Christ The Son of the living God That's where John was going through his whole gospel he wasn't talking about repentance because repentance isn't really at the crux of believing in Jesus. And so back to the question that was asked, help me with the definition of believe, I think that there's a problem today, and that is there's some Christians over here that are saying believe means to repent, it means to be committed, it means to surrender, it means to, to really lay your life on the line for Jesus, and all that's part of belief. But in reality, if you go to the New Testament, you never see believe in that. Believing was simply a, a simple act of taking someone at their word. It's just like if we, if you, we made an engagement tomorrow and I said to you, I, I'm, I, we'll meet tomorrow at lunch, down at Marie Calendar's at noon. I believe if you say you'll be there, that I'm taking you at your word. You said you'd be there, you'll be there. Now, that's a simple illustration, but the, we're, we're putting the emphasis on the wrong thing. Belief in the Scripture is simple. It's not complex. The problem is, in whom we believe. And the point being is, as Jesus says, if we want to have eternal life, we must believe in Him for that life. We can't believe in Him and Buddha and and a bunch of other things for eternal life. We can only believe in Him. That's the only name under heaven by which men can be saved and women can be saved. So, believing... It's simple It's just taking him at his words Jesus said Truly, truly, I say to you He who believes in me Has everlasting life Do you believe that? Or don't you believe that? Are you taking him at his word? Then you have eternal life If you don't think you have eternal life Then you haven't taken him at his word So assurance is sort of built into the whole process If I ask you Do you have eternal life? And you say, I don't know Well, then you haven't believed That's the point of it. It doesn't involve repentance and submission. And all that's part of our Christian experience. It's not how we become a Christian. Now, this is a tough one. Now, was Samson saved from his early faith or his dying crying out at the end of his life when he... Was pushing. I take it against the walls of the uh, temple, the pagan temple that he was in. Being that he had lost faith in God in the Old Testament, is it still once saved, always saved, or if he never cried out, would he still be saved? You know, I don't. Nobody can say what's in a person's heart, but it certainly, it certainly would seem from the way the scriptures describe Samson and his love for God, at least early on in his life. That he truly believed in the Lord, and if he did, then he had eternal life. He was justified, as Abraham was justified in the eyes of God. But that didn't mean that Abraham never did anything wrong. And certainly Samson's actions were far from what we would emulate as a Christian. But nevertheless, I would say he was saved probably early in his life when he put his faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Not in Jesus Christ, but in the Messiah to come, who would be Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, salvation, they didn't have the name yet, but they did understand that their Messiah was the one who would bring them deliverance from their sin and from uh, death and from hell. Okay, uh, let's see here. Lately, I've been tracing Jesus' lineage through David and Joseph, showing how he is the king. And I'd like to to trace his priestly line. Can you give me some scriptures to go to? Yes. Hebrews, chapter 5 and 6. He is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That means he has no beginning, no ending, as the book of Hebrews says. He has no lineage. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He he, he can't trace Jesus' priestly line from Levi and Aaron in the Old Testament. Because Jesus, like Melchizedek in the Old Testament, who just appeared on the scene, received tithes from, from Abraham, representing God, functioning as a priest, and then disappeared, so to speak, as far as the biblical record was concerned. He came and he went. There was no lineage. There was nothing we know about him apart from the fact that he was there at the moment that he was needed. With Jesus, he's after that order, and that you don't know where he came from. I mean, in terms of his priesthood, it did not have a beginning, it did not have an ending. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, it's important to keep that clear. What is the Christian way of resisting the government? How much resistance is biblical? Boy, that's a tough question, and I, you know, I think that uh, in our country... We have an unusual government compared to governments that existed in biblical times. I would say that, uh, however, when laws are made that would, for instance, if the law says you you cannot worship God and you cannot serve your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would say that's time to resist. On the other hand, the government's going to make laws and make things, make Pass laws and do things that we may not agree with. And, in fact, we may find uh, reprehensible as Christians. Remember, the the government and the people are accountable to the Lord. And, in, in a sense, you could say in a democracy we're all bearing some responsibility. But if we voted what is right, voted our conscience, and tried to express ourselves through the vehicle that we have in a democracy, then I think we've done what we need to do. On the other hand, there may come a point at which very basic principles of Scripture regarding a Christian's freedom to worship his God and to serve the Lord Jesus Christ could be somehow impinged by our government. And in that case, I would say we need to resist. How would you respond to James 2.19 with grace theology? The difference between believing that and believing in... Personally, I think I'll talk with you privately about that If, you, if that was your question, come and see me after church uh, I think we've heard a lot about that and Don't need to continue to believe it Were the disciples in John six sixty six 66 believers? I can't say See, you can be a disciple and be a believer You can be a disciple and not be a believer Give me an illustration Somebody that was a disciple, not a believer Judas, number one illustration And he was a good disciple I mean, he was preaching He was casting out demons He was doing the other things the other disciples were doing They had no clue that he was the betrayer So he must have pulled one over on him He just lacked one thing According to Jesus He didn't believe So, disciples Could be believers Or they could not be believers And I don't think we can make that determination In fact, that's one of the problems that we have Is that when we try to play God And figure out whether a person's a Christian or not We get into trouble because we start looking at their works and we look at what they say and we look at all these things we don't really know what was in their past I've often well I won't say that get in trouble move on why does do the uh, that probably wouldn't be a good one to discuss today regarding rumors what if someone goes to the source Oh, we're already back home Okay got one more one more question here for you and then we're going to go to the Lord's supper. John never speaks about forgiveness except in one verse. It's in John 20:23. 20, if you have your Bible, you can take a look at that or I'm going to they'll show it up on the screen probably for you. John 20:23 20, And you, you probably saw that I passed over it rather quickly last Sunday. And the reason it wasn't because I didn't want to explain it. It's just that when you get into explanation, it takes a lot of time away from being able to apply the scripture. So there's always you're always striving for a balance between the two. But this is what we read in John twenty twenty three. Let's go to 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, his disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. And we've talked about that. Then he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, the problem is, is that why did Jesus seem to give over the authority to his disciples to determine who will experience forgiveness and who won't? That doesn't seem to be... I thought this was God's business about forgiving. but Jesus passed it to the disciples. What's going on here? Is this talking about salvation? Obviously not, because forgiveness of sins is never discussed in John. Forgiveness is something that we experience, friends. It's something that has to do with our fellowship with God, our intimacy with God, our relationship with God. Receiving eternal life is something we receive that comes to us by faith in Him. The moment we believe, we have eternal life. But we may not be forgiven. You say that's impossible. How could they do? Well, let's take a look at that. There is an illustration, and interestingly, it's Peter who has set the rules down for forgiveness. Acts chapter 2:36 to 30 through 40 really sets this out. Take a look at it. Acts 2:36. We read this. Peter's preached this long message to a particular group of people called, they were Jews, but they were a particular type of Jew. They were Palestinian Jew who had really been there when Jesus was put on the cross. And therefore, they were the ones crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And so Peter brought them to a point where he said, this same Jesus whom you crucified, verse 36, God has made him Lord and Christ. And you know what happened next? They were pierced in their heart. Now, if they were pierced in their heart over what he said in verse 36, which is clear, it's clear also that they believed that Jesus was their Christ, the Messiah, their Savior. And if they believed, then they had eternal life. But they were not yet forgiven. And they knew they weren't. Because they felt this awesome weight of having put God's own Messiah on the cross. And so what does Jesus do? Or what does Peter do there? First they say to Peter, "What, what can we do? To eliminate this burden of guilt that we have Over the fact that we put Jesus on the cross, our Savior And Peter says this Repent and be baptized For the forgiveness of sins And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit Now let me just make clear I believe they already had eternal life What they did not have Was peace with God Harmony with God a relationship with God, forgiveness with God. They weren't experiencing that. In order to experience that, they had to do something. They had to repent, turn away from this wicked act that they had done, and begin to follow and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And furthermore, they needed to be baptized. And once they did, they would experience forgiveness with God, because baptism was a clean break with that generation that put him on the cross. That's why many people in, for instance, in Muslim countries, if you say you believe in Jesus, that's one thing, but if you get baptized, they consider you dead. You're no longer a member of the family. Because baptism was a clean break with a generation, with a people. And that was the case with these Palestinian Jews. It was a clean break with them. And so, basically... Peter said, you need to break from this generation. He called it an untoward or perverse generation. You need to break from them, and the way to do that is to repent, turn away from them and away from what they've done, embrace Jesus, follow Him, and be baptized. Those are requirements in order to receive the forgiveness of sins. Fulfilling exactly what Jesus said they would do in John chapter 20, verse 23. He said, if you forgive, it will be forgiven in heaven. So he gave them the authority to set down the requirements, so to speak. What's interesting is that when you get over to Acts chapter 10, and Cornelius, God begins to step into the picture and set down the requirements for the Gentiles. And you know what the requirements were to be forgiven as a Gentile? None. Cornelius, a typical Gentile, is listening to Peter preach the gospel. And what happens? While Peter is preaching, The Spirit of God falls upon him. Peter in the next chapter says, they were forgiven just as we are. They didn't have to be baptized. They didn't have to repent. They were baptized and they did repent, but it came after the fact of forgiveness. Read it carefully. It's in Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. So you have God... Enabling a Gentile who wasn't guilty of putting Jesus on the cross and being enabled to have forgiveness right away. Whereas the Jew who was guilty of being part of that, that crucifixion of Jesus, for him, it was required before he could experience forgiveness. He could be saved just by believing. But to experience forgiveness and closeness and intimacy with God, he had to be baptized and repent. For a Gentile to experience immediate intimacy with God, he simply believes. And that's what most of us experienced, isn't it? When we became Christians, we put our faith in Jesus and immediately we sensed that we were close with God, that our sins were forgiven, and that we could have this ongoing relationship. However, we need to continue to confess. And if we fall into sin, and become, it becomes a pattern of life. And we are unrepentant. We need to repent. In order to come back and enjoy intimacy with God again, even though we're going to heaven, we're not enjoying intimacy with him on this earth. And we're losing ground with him in terms of our future reward. This is a complex subject, but I wanted to just touch on it because I had slid over it and I know that it's something that, uh, that some of you have mentioned. I thought it would show up in the cards, but you were merciful. Let's uh, move now to our Lord's Supper observance. Our Father, thank you for this special opportunity we have to just consider these questions and the truth that is brought out from your word. I just pray that you would help all who have heard these answers and responses, uh, that uh, they may understand what uh, was intended to be said. And if there's any confusion, Lord, you might bring them uh, to me and that we might discuss it further and be able to make things more clear for them. And again, I just thank you for your for your word and for the wisdom it gives to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen.